Tim Gusecki is a multi-generational farmer. He began to experiment in sustainable regenerative landscapes, which took him straight into exploring governance, ecological economies, and the reality of what happens when you're working with regenerative agriculture. Many people take food for granted and actually are quite disconnected from the land itself and what's involved in producing the food that we buy from grocery stores every day. On this episode, we're going to learn a lot from what it looks like literally on the ground, in the soil, from Tim's point of view as a farmer. We're also going to learn from the transition, the shifting of gears from one form of agriculture, meaning traditional practices, into more of a regenerative approach and the experiment and mitigation of risk that goes with that. There's lots here for business to learn. Tim brings an experience as an experimental farmer in regenerative practices, a soil and water conservation, farm bill policy analyst. He has a master's degree in environmental studies, bringing a very broad, comprehensive, and effective approach to integrated resource management. You're listening to the Insights to Action Inspirational Insights podcast. My name is Donna Jones, and I'm your host. Tim, how did you get started playing around with regenerative agriculture, and what have you learned from that experience? Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a great conversation, and it's quite open-ended as we figure this out. But uh, I, I grew up on a Midwest dairy farm, you know, and then uh, escaped it as fast as I could when I got out of high school. But it always stuck with me. And when I came back to farming in 1996, I saw the world had changed. The landscape had changed quite a bit. I saw a lot of the things that I enjoyed as a youth around the landscape gone and converted to rural crop agriculture. And, and just wondering, how, how can these things come back? Farming is very competitive. And uh, without an economic signal, not enough people are going to do it just for their, their sake of values. As farms got larger, even if you like to hunt and, and do those things, if you own 1,000 acres, you still only need maybe five acres of hunting ground. And you had 200 acres, five acres as a hunting ground. It's like, how do we bring these back? Well, that was part of it. How, how do these environmental values become incorporated into transactions? As I you know, learned the basics of that, I got closer to regenerative agriculture. As I'm getting into regenerative agriculture relative to livestock and grass farming, if you want to call it that, but perennial vegetation, you start seeing how much value you can bring through an ecological system from both food, fiber, and feed, as well as clean water, clean air, carbon sequestration. Where, where is that balance that we have lost our way on agriculture? We lost it because we didn't value it. And so how does that value come back into regenerative agriculture to make it a viable occupation? Regenerative agriculture is a pretty high leverage focus for carbon emissions, for climate change. What have you learned about traditional thinking vis-a-vis the kind of thinking you need to bring to a regenerative approach to both agriculture and the economy. Yeah, you mentioned I had a career in soil and water conservation. I was you know, the, the local entity of the USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service. The field office tech guide is a Bible of conservation. They did great work of soil conservation from the 30s to the 80s. They still do great work, but the context is, is bigger now. I think we're so used to mining the soil to a degree. We want to be good stewards, but we are essentially turning the soil and and mining the carbon out of it. There's a limit to that. And I think we're starting to realize that limit. We're hoping we can slow it down with the traditional farming methods. And I think that's possible. 
But I think as we move into the future, we're really going to have to look at regenerative practices. The five tons of soil loss is tolerable in the past. Well, maybe that's not tolerable. What, what becomes tolerable in a regenerative system versus uh, a system that is more akin to those 50s and 60s and 70s so far? Five tons of soil loss, that's a huge number. And it's really hard to grok when you think about it. If we look at drought, for example, which you're in the middle of, and there's a number of other places where drought is a factor, what's the difference in terms of the farm experience between the traditional approach to drought and what you're doing, what kinds of experiments you run on your property with your animals? I started farming in uh, 1986, and you know the, the first thing I did was start planning for a drought. The drought is what scares me as a producer. It's no fun. So it's like, how do I bring carbon into the soil? How do I increase the water holding capacity? Interesting, in 96, we were in a wet cycle for quite a few years after that. And, and my father had farmed the land prior to me and lived close, was still involved in it. I watched him because he wasn't akin to all the additional residue and the things that are harder to manage. But as we head through the kind of the, the wet years there, he's, oh, I didn't think the soil was going to be working well enough. Old farmers know exactly when things are going to happen to their farm. When it rains an inch and it's a certain temperature, they know when the field will be ready to go. And so, oh, I didn't think it'd be ready yet. But I start noticing that this added carbon is, is really both ends of the spectrum. It's water holding capacity. In a drought, it holds that little extra. In a wet year, it, it holds that extra too. So it keeps the air in the soil. It really became a positive on both ends of the spectrum of trying to manage you know, tillable land. There's a shift in thinking that takes place, though, between what your father did as a farmer and what you're doing as a farmer. <laughs> what does that look like when you and he talk? That's a, this is a big deal from generational changes, right? It's really hard for a son or a daughter to change the operation. Our operation has been in the family since the 1880s. My great-grandfather, our boys are the fifth generation. It's difficult to change your ways because you're almost telling them they're wrong, right? But I'm pretty independent-minded, and I have to do with economic research. And even between generations, if your father says it should be one way and you see the other because you think it's going to be better economically, you better better stand your ground. I take the risk. I'm taking the financial risk. If it rains or if there's a drought, I'm taking the financial risk, and I want to prepare and mitigate that risk. So we wrestled through those changes, but since it was mainly my economic risk, I felt very comfortable with making those calls. Now, if he was covering you know, it, people bankroll different ways, then I think you have to listen to the CEO. But I think that's the biggest thing is bringing new ideas into an old operation and having those difficult family generational discussions about how to move the farm forward. So. Really what we're talking about is it's the difference between the way we think the way things are done. This is how things are done. We, mm-hmm. we could hear that in any company today. This is how we've always done it. This is the way things are done. And then this different approach that you're bringing in, which in a drought condition, means you've got grass, somebody else doesn't have grass. And the criticism is, for example, that your grass is too tall. <laughs> right. It's farming. Yeah, it's, it's paradigms. They're so strange because when you're in one, you can't see the other. And when you're in the next one, you forgot the one you were in almost. And, and that's how it is. So they have this notion of what farming is, what pasture is, what raising livestock is. And anything different appears wrong. And part of it because it's uncertain. You don't know how to manage that way. If, if the grass is waist high and they've never seen grass that way high, that, let's, except on a piece of property that has been neglected, that's wrong. 
I venture into these areas with uncertainty. You trial things out. You don't roll the dice on your whole farm. You learn things, but we have to advance in some way. And, and this summer, when this is a, really the first drought, and we're not severe drought, we're in a moderate drought. We're still managing. But it, it was quite incredible to, take, to have the cows take down three-foot tall grasses in the paddocks over several days. And then and then when they move on, start seeing that other previous paddock green up as fast as it does and dig underneath the mulch and feel the soil being cool and seeing that stuff bounce back up again. In a moderate drought, you're seeing your land produce. It's okay. You can't do that forever, but basically what it is, is bridging the time between the next rain. Hopefully you get that, but it, it mitigates some of that risk. And, uh, you know, I think that's the challenge. How do you know when you're mitigating the right? <laughs> Doing it right? Because there's a little saying, a good rain makes even a bad farmer look good. You can also do the reverse. Good farming may maybe make a farmer look good when you let the ecological systems take care. So yeah, yeah, it's tough. Every year is a new story, but there's some principles that you need to abide by, I think, ecological principles to really mitigate the risk. Okay, so two things that come up now. One is to talk about those ecological principles, but the other one is to talk about the practices. What are you doing that makes your grass grow in drought when somebody else's grass is not doing as well and they think you're wrong? What exactly are you doing that makes the difference? Sure, and I'm always careful not to get too confident because nature has a way of telling you that you're too confident. But the ecological principles, well, economic too, diversity, right? No one ever tells you to put all your eggs in one basket. I searched around and, and got grasses, and I did pick it from a state south. I looked and I found the best. But if you if you want good hardy cattle, you, you buy cattle from a harsher environment. If you want grasses that are going to deal with the heat, you better go south to get them. There's some of that mentality. But mainly, besides that point, it was I want a nice diverse mix. I want diverse grasses. I want a diverse legume to interact and have some resiliency there. When the grasses do get three feet tall, if you have a monoculture, you don't have a very good stand. There isn't a whole lot of protein left in that, and there is a lot of rank grasses. In there. I think that's what people see when they drive by. They see the tops of those mature grasses and think that I have a, a worthless pasture or worth less. What's really happening down there, there's multiple layers of different species that are coming through that's a key. Diversity is a you know, very uh, basic principle in that. When people say you're raising cows, they go, you're not really growing cows, you're growing grass because the grass, the cows don't have. But if you take that one step farther, I'm not really growing grass, I'm growing roots. My three-foot grasses have three-foot roots or longer. That is where your productivity comes from. Relative to rotational grazing principles, I have a tendency to let my grasses grow a little taller than what the book says mainly because I know the roots are growing a little longer than that. So I'll give up a little bit on, on the top on some of the maybe quality growth, although like I say, the diverse mix makes up for that. And then really make sure I have a good root depth on my grasses. Interesting. Now, can you bridge us from there over to ecological economies? We have an economic system that actually doesn't value what you're doing. Talk about the insights you that the ecology has taught you with respect to economics. I'm going to try not to get real deep in the background here, but I'm going to give it a shot to keep where it makes sense. I've been involved with ecological economics for, for 20, 30 years, or at least studying it, being around it, trying to figure out what it looks like. I've been involved with government. Government programs work for some things, but we can't have a program to solve everything. So how do we weave economic and ecological systems together? Over time, I've watched a lot of these show up. And to get to the point, 
I realized I need to have to be able to account for my land management. The effort I'm working on right now is gridding, gridding the landscape up in squares. Each one becomes a unit of measurement. And with modern technology and GIS, you couldn't do this 10 years ago very well. Now you can. Let's say there's a, a three meter by three meter square on the, on the piece of property. From that square, you grow a certain amount of corn or a certain amount of grass or a certain amount of beef, but you also can get to a certain amount of water quality, a certain amount of carbon. So it just really becomes the container, like a bushel. So you know, what is a bushel? A bushel is nothing until you put something in it, just a container. And it, it helps us measure and account for grain. What we are proposing is this natural capital unit, this you know grid on the earth, and that's the container. Now I can identify what comes off that land, what goes on it, and people can begin valuing that relative to their their sustainability claims. It, it sounds like a, a mess, but it really does align my property with my. It, it gives me a layer of accounting that I didn't have before. I can account for these squares and how I produce on them and what comes off of them. And I really believe that is the basis of the future because we need context to our environmental goals. And you don't really have context without a spatial context. Just because someone saved carbon, sure, that goes in the atmosphere. But really, ecologically speaking, what's the context of that value? You have to go back to the landscape and you have to go back to the spot it was. I really see the accounting system to be on that order where we can track it, where we can just account for it. It comes down to accounting and you need a measurement unit like a bushel. In this case, we have a natural capital unit on the line. In a nutshell, that's just really where we're going to is spatial accounting system. You just said we, who's we, mm -hmm. and how does that link up to governance? We was me in 2010, my business attorney. He told me, Tim, I think you got something. You should write a book. It doesn't be long, 80 pages, just something to document what you are laying this out. I had been working on projects where I was doing this in a crude manner. 400 pages later, I, I called it Eco-Commerce 101. And I got good attention on it. There's people trying to explore it. Walmart just came out with their sustainability index. And this book was all about in the season and spatial context. So that was all good. That was we, a very small group. In 2016, I wrote my next book on shared governance of sustainable working landscape. So it was really, how does this natural capital unit, how does that enable governance to occur? How can I share in, in that wealth with corporations or insurers or utilities or whoever? They need a spatial context as well. So that's where that kind of shared governance piece came. There's a context to that. Then in uh, 2019, I was invited out to Vermont to their egg summit. And this is where the we got a little bigger now and presented this natural capital unit, this accounting system. It was farmers and legislators and academics and all sorts of people in the conference, but 200 people. We started growing a little bit. The farmers were the most interested in it. After that, I started getting a little more attention. So there's about 12 of us now, a network of people actually around the West, Sweden and Africa, the United States and Japan, and that have accepted a natural capital unit as an accounting system. And, and building the technological infrastructure on that. And I am not one to build that technological infrastructure, but that, that is the we. It's an informal group of us moving together, but we've been together since uh, February of this year and making the nice progress. We're getting on the same page on this. Wow, that's a phenomenal evolution. Just how it's expanded. A couple of things I want to explore with you. One of them is the link between 
what you're learning from this from an agricultural and ecological principles point of view and how that would look expand to global governance. Is there anything that we can learn from that kind of a leap? Yeah, so are you familiar with ESG, Environment, Social and Governance? It's the acronym that corporations have embraced over the years of how to address our global issue. What are the environmental outcomes that the corporation or any entity really deals with? What are the social values they bring to that? And then what's their governance structure? In, in hindsight, I, I really think I addressed ESG in that order in my three books. And so the environment was equal commerce 101. The, the social aspect was a transaction platform where people could share and, and gain value, where I can as a, get a slice of the value for me doing the ecological right thing. The governance piece is now I govern my landscape, but others have great influence on how, on what I do. During this last year, as we started establishing this natural capital unit, and this is my latest thinking on here, but I'm very comfortable with it. We're not going to be able to deliver ESG individually as we are trying. We're not going to be able to have an environmental package, a social package, and a governance package. I do believe that from this global ecological issue, natural capital units allow us to have shared governance where partnership, equity, accountability, and ownership occur. Do you get the ESG in that one package? Yeah. So I think that is the paradigm where if you're not in it, it seems bizarre. What we're seeing now is we package the environmental goods, we figure out how to share that socially somehow, and then governance is, or we have this board and we're going to be inclusive. From a shared governance perspective, the landowner really is the governor of the landscape with great influence from others outside. And I think that's where we're trying to shift this is provide the landowner with more recognition that they are the governor of the landscape and then how do the others participate in it. The shift is big. It's a big one yes. intellectually, psychologically, emotionally. There's a whole lot of dimensions to it. I remember when we had our first conversation, one of the intriguing things was around the perception of what you're doing as being hard work versus what everyone is used to doing. Can we revisit that story, just what's involved in your day-to-day -day around implementing this kind of practice vis-a-vis -vis what people assume? Because I think there's a lot of insight to be gained from what you've observed that directly informs what's going on in, in both business governance, but also broader governance structures. People don't recognize the ecological work that's done by nature. They don't see it. So someone must have to do it. The person said, that seems like a lot of hard work. I said, if things all go well, every three days we walk down and open the gate. I don't even walk. I have one of those side-by-sides that we jump in usually and drive out there and open the gate up. Nothing's that easy, but that's the foundation of it. There's always things in between, but that's generally the, the model of operation. Now, the other model is cut and bale and haul hay and store it and feed it and haul the manure away. And that's the other model, which is a tremendous amount of investment in work. But people normalize their work and they normalize what they do as normal and therefore they accept it. The rule of thumb is we should be able to set up a grazing operation so a 12-year-old can do it. You know, start from there because that makes your life you know, easier. You will do harder things than that, but maybe to shift into this whole eco-commerce model, 
I think people think it's a lot of hard work too. You know, why are you going through all the extent to develop a natural cap per unit and all this? And the government has programs already. So why don't you just do those? I, I do kind of from philosophy. I don't mind working hard to set something up, you know. So to walk out there and open the gate up every three days takes a lot of work to set that up. Like put your fences up, you need to know all these things, you got a plan, you got to do. I'm more the person that I don't mind working hard up front and then let the ecology work after that, you know. Maybe that's my philosophy with this natural capital unit. There's a lot of work up front, but once it's done, we should be able to exchange values fairly easy on a computer screen for what we what we can automate and things like that. And maybe that's the whole philosophy. Work hard up front and let things unfold as they come more naturally. Now, I think what you've said is interesting for anybody who's not familiar with farm operations. Opening the gate simply means you're letting your cows move from one pasture to another on a rotational basis so that one particular area doesn't get drilled down to the ground. The other thing that you and I talked about originally was that in a drought condition, you put cows in on tall grass and the grass gets trampled over, which holds the moisture in. There's a phenomenal dynamic that natural ecology looks after that, that our temptation to try and manipulate and control landscapes has really led to them being unsustainable. And therein lies the opportunity. When you look ahead and you look at the farming community and the mindsets that are there, we've got seven point something billion people to feed on the planet. Yes, we have plant-based foods coming forward, but we also still have a strong need to basically restore and regenerate dead soil. A lot of nations have dead soil. Tell us more about how what you're learning now that applies to that regeneration process. I think the challenge or the difficulty in, in, in seeing an operation that doesn't look like the others is we're so ingrained that efficiency is king. Efficiency and king is probably the right term is paternal approach to managing everything. We, we think efficiency is the best. Well, the trade-off of efficiency is resiliency. If my grasses grow a little taller and they're not the same kind and I don't cut them, boy, I, I maybe I'm giving up a little bit in productivity. Uh, maybe not, but that's a view. So then it's what is, what's the most efficient system to get the most off the land and the most and most. That works great while everything works great. But if you do come across a, a drought or excessive rain, there's no resiliency. There's less resiliency in systems that are really honed down to efficient. I think that's probably the hardest thing. The culture I grew up in, it's determined to, to extract all the value from everything that if you give a little away, you're not doing it right. Part of that is in the agriculture community of the United States, there's a huge tendency for the government to bail out farmers when things go bad. We basically encourage people to run with a full basket of eggs. If you trip and fall, we'll have hand you another basket of eggs. And that's how it is. So from a competitive perspective, the, the most rational thing to do is run with a full basket of eggs at all the time. Because when you get to the place you're running, you're there first and you get the most. And if you do trip, someone's there to save you. There is no negative feedback in much of American agriculture to be resilient. And I think that was in the 30s and 40s, long before my time. There was diverse operations that knew that when droughts came, you better have a crop that's spring, summer, and fall. You better have diverse livestock and you better have diversity. So when, when adversity comes, not all your eggs are in that one basket. And we, we gave that out to support efficiency over resiliency. And I think that's probably going to be the biggest challenge is to back off of efficiency and incorporate resiliency just against our culture. If we uh, embark on that 
beautiful shift that you've just described between efficiency mm -hmm. and resiliency. If you focus on resiliency and you have got a collective focus on it from some magical tipping point of farmers in, let's just use the US as an example, what could be the potential result of doing so? Unfortunately, this regenerative concept and resiliency is part of the conversation. And, and people that have never been on a farm and aren't ecologists, you know, aren't sure what that is, I would guess. That's pretty hard to, we don't have to get this perfect. We have to be directionally correct. And I think that's part of the problem is people want to get this perfect. We want to spend all the time to measure the carbon right down to the exact pound per acre. And if it's a little off, oh, we have problems. That's probably that efficiency thing. We can, you know, 0.001, resiliency is a little looser than that, you know, and uh, that's where the outcome base is how do we shift the direction toward more resilience? Here's some principles. If you don't want your soil to move, don't move your soil. That's one of the old sayings, right? And these perennial systems do that very well. If you grow crop, you have to move it less if you want your soil to move less. How do we get to the point where some common knowledge to a degree, I should say, that they're promoted and, and incentivized, and those are the outcomes we shoot for. I'm an island in a sea of tilled crops where I'm in Southern Minnesota. And so it's not really neat, we have something here. The challenge I put before me is how do I make this system more economically profitable than the neighbors? Because until that happens, I'll just remain as an island. The outcome is if we, if we start valuing these unvalued ecological benefits, you're gonna see that landscape shift because people want to do the right thing. There's a lot of people I think that would like to farm like I do. It's a nice way to farm, but it, you need to to know how to do it just like anything else. You you need to put up against the social pressures of others not doing it, but then you need to have a, a, a good profit story in front of it. I don't think we'll get there without valuing the carbon, water, and biodiversity things that we are producing here. I don't think we can get there without at least putting that layer in the economy. You don't get things that you don't value. If people don't get up in the morning and think they're going to make money by doing these things because they won't. You get the stuff you make money on and, and somehow that we have to incorporate that into these transactions. First, you need an accounting system to do that. And once you have that, then people can start playing around with value and economics. The accounting system that you described is basically a vehicle for accomplishing something more global. Yes, because you it, right now it's like spaghetti on the wall. We have all sorts of programs, all sorts of people, and, and some of it's going to stick. And, and, and we will get some carbon sequestration. We'll get some biodiversity. But at the end of 20 years, you say, what happened? And you'll look at the wall and you'll say, well, that all stuff. Yeah. Where really what you need to do is after 20 years, you're going to have to say, you know what? We are shifting the planet to sequestering this much carbon, this much is being emitted. You know, we, it's, it's crazy as it is. We need a planetary accounting system for ecology. And we live in an era right now where that is not possible. So let's step up and put this together. What's interesting is we have 10 uh, pilots around the world that are eager to be on that grid and start sharing what they do and start populating that grid. It's amazing. Before this, I had a hard time convincing very many people. After the start of this year, I bring the natural capital unit up to people and they nod their head and say, can I be involved? And I'm almost like, yes, but not yet. In September, we'll have something closer. 
since I wrote the first book 11 years ago. Most interest has occurred in the last six months in the first 10 years. April of 2019 is where I saw the uptick, and then this year was another uptick. It's promising. I'm patient. I'm not surprised if it doesn't go soon, but the, the trend is there. I have to be patient because... What else are you going to do? And you're a farmer, so you're used to being patient. Exactly. So our, our boys do some small square bailing. And I said, so here it is. We'll bail this up and you may get paid for it next winter when it gets sold. There is no instant gratification. Plant, you harvest, you store. It's part of the, my mind frame from a small kid, I guess. What can business decision makers learn from what you've learned from the ecology? I, I think what we're going to do is give them an opportunity to provide more context into what they see as sustainable. I'm sure they're inundated with a lot of these different programs and all that. What I think they can learn is that they can sit back a, a little bit and view the bigger picture. Where on the world do you want to do good work? And what kind of good work do you want to do in that spot you just picked out? And let them say, oh boy, Toledo drinking water has been catastrophes over the years. We would like to look at that part of the world. And then what do you want to do? Water quality, of course. We can give them context of where their values could do the most. That's really not available right now. It's just kind of like start sequestering, start buying credits. So let's calm down the conversation a little bit. <laughs> let's have a reasonable conversation about what you, where you value and what you value, and let's find a spot for that. Brilliant. I love that. The other thing that I think you're touching upon is that in, in traditional business thinking, we've got little silos of activity but in farming, it's all one integrated, it's not siloed, it can't be siloed. Yeah, the tapestry of the landscape is there. It's in many different shapes and forms and all these things. I struggle with the idea of gritting it out. It doesn't sound very natural. It sounds very economical and very, you know, whatever, all these things. But then I realized when the Europeans settled America, they felt they needed a, a, a unit of measurement for land to own, and, and they did the township and range, and that grid. Lots of good and lots of bad happened from those moments on, but it really came to my conclusion is that if, if we want a coherent way to uh, value what comes off the land, we need an, another grid. That's what this is. It's the evolution of land valuation. The township and range gave us one. And hopefully this grid gives us the next one, which is these ecological qualities that we've been fortunate enough to ignore since really the beginning of uh, humankind because it's regenerative and it has provided us with plenty. And now this 7 billion people, the way we consume and the way we treat the ecological systems, it's degrading and we're noticing that. So it's like, how do we shift that to a way that we can account for it? It's a natural progression. It's just a, a big new concept that people are grappling. There'll probably be some grappling with that for a bit to come. What has your dad learned from you from all of this? Well, he learned that I am a good farmer. The fact that I went no-till for a few years, unheard of at the time in the late 90s, early 2000s around here. I went to conservation tillage where you have a lot of residue from the previous crops. And he learned that you can farm that way and be successful. Now you drive across the landscape and there's not no-till here. But there's a lot of conservation tillage. It's funny. It's hard to be a pioneer from a social perspective because the people think you're an idiot when you do it. And when they adopt it, years later, they really don't give you the credit for it because they don't really remember all of that. Ideas come to people. So it, it, I realize that it is really socially thankless to be a pioneer because you really get the raw end of both sides. That is so true. <laughs>
Yeah. But again, if you do it right, you're ahead of the game. You're mitigating your risk. You're moving. Even one of the reasons I did go from row crop farming to, to a perennial is because I saw the robots coming, right? The tractors are becoming robotic and I can't compete with robots. I don't have the resources to get robots. Many more hours to keep up with a robot. I just didn't see that as a viable future for the size of operation we are. In time, you, those may be more efficient and they can be on small operations and, and the cycle turns over again. But that was one reason why I did move that and multiple reasons. We had kids that were teenagers that needed to work more in, in different operations on the farm. But from kind of a business direction, I did not want to compete with robots. And so I moved on to biology, right? We can't make robotic cows yet. So and robotic grasses yet. I'm in a field that I'm, I'm safe for a while. I can compete. That's, that's, how, that's what it comes down to. How can you compete and, and enjoy it? So. If there's something from a mindset point of view that you could share with business decision makers or with anybody who's making decisions that have a big impact, that have a legacy like the one you're, you know, what you're creating here, what would you say? Yeah, it's really exploring the forefront of this ecological dimension, right? It's really defining that. We, as this network, want to provide the tools for this. There's some in our group that still lean toward, we need to have this water quality number and this index, and we want to be very prescriptive of how we move the world into a direction. I think that is up to these business leaders to define that. Sustainability is defined ecologically and economically, and it's going to be a dance between those two forever. It's to be directionally correct to set some standards as in not so much numerical standards, but ethical standards and sustainability standards that they hold and can guide. You're going to see, of course, in, in, in the competitive world, people are going to call sustainability in some cases the least sustainable, the least amount of money and, and just stamp it and go. Transparency in this will, will weed them out. We're not going to be naive. Business leaders have, if we provide this tool for them, they can provide the market signal and get the credit to what do you want to call that. They can lead defining sustainability. Uh, and what that means regionally, locally, globally, you know, and all those different scales that businesses operate. Here's a tool. How can you use it to the best of your ability? What do you use uh, as principles when you're making your decisions? What are you guided by? I'm an ethical person as in I like to see people succeed. I, I don't think I'm overly that way by any means. I'm for the underdog, I guess. I'm for fair, but I'm for open and fair. I'm for competitive. I think we need to have that edge, but we need to have information. I just like a very even playing field, I think, is my principles. If I see it tilted one way, I, I do work on their side to balance that out. And then long term, we are in such a unique time in the history of the world. As you read, you, you really get the appreciation of where we're at. The printing press time was a big deal and the internet was a big deal. We were in these big deal times. And, and so part of it, the self-challenges, I just like great big challenges. They're great to work on and to open my mind and, and then tap into the pioneers of thinking like Adam Smith, the eco-commerce book is one of the smartest people that had original thought without any clutter around it. I like to put those pieces together and just get the sense that these are solvable and go from there. That's why my farm operations since 96 has changed multiple times because I moved through systems and then shift. And this last system going from row crop to perennial was the last three years has been a big change of the shift, but I enjoy it. We're toward the end of that shift now. 
that hard work up front is done and now the 12 year old can run that operation. So all those things come in, but I, from my own personal professional, I feel like the big challenge is certainly the biggest problem telling me I can't solve it. And I'll, I'll ruminate on that for a week, month or years, whatever. It is. It's a good thing you like those challenges because when it comes to food production globally and, and agriculture, we're definitely got that challenge in front of us. So thank you for the work you're doing. You no, know, it's just great conversation. This is all evolving stuff. I'm glad to see there's so many more participants in it and yeah, look for good things in the next uh, two, three years. Moving from one form of agriculture to another form of agriculture is really not any different from what we're seeing in the business world of moving from a linear way of thinking without regard for consequence or effect to actually paying attention to being responsible for what happens. We're looking at agility of thinking, the ability to adapt our thinking to different realities and contexts as they emerge. The Business Agility Institute is dedicated to sharing stories that profile business agility, meaning the, the freedom, the flexibility, and the resilience to achieve the purpose of the business. Emergence Magazine is a premium publication published four times a year, including exclusive stories by great thinkers and practitioners worldwide. You'll find more details on the businessagility.institute website. Scroll down and find the Emergence Magazine. When you subscribe, use the discount code DAWNA for a 10% discount. It's a great magazine. I have two articles in the current issue. One is on Matt Black Systems, on their transformation process and how they achieved 500% productivity without trying. And the other is on Roche Sweden on their transformation process. And to provide a little bit of background on regenerative agriculture, the summer issue of Corporate Nights, which is a Canadian business sustainability magazine, has a super article on regenerative agriculture. To quote from the magazine, it turns out that tilling the land destroys complex fungal and microbial networks that make up the Earth's life-sustaining microbiome, all while releasing valuable moisture into the air and quietly unleashing billions of tons of carbon into the atmosphere. What we've been doing basically has not been good, and the opportunity is to do something far, far better. Now, there's a whole lot of companies that understand this and are working to introduce regenerative agriculture. Companies like General Mills, Danone, Unilever, and Nestle are working on this. Patagonia, Gucci, and Timberland. Also, PepsiCo recently announced that it would be implementing regenerative practices across its entire ecological footprint, which would start off by eliminating 3 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions by the end of the decade. So not only is this about greenhouse gas emissions, it is also about biodiversity. My name is Donna Jones, and I am dedicated to connecting decisions, business decisions in particular, to regenerating the life force vitality of all systems, ecological, social, economical, because it's all entangled. Some of the principles of nature apply not only to teams, high-performance teams like diversity, to also the vitality of life itself through biodiversity. I'm also committed to using the principles that the planet's been using for 4.5 billion years to manage companies. We have companies in the world who've been using these principles and are highly successful, highly resilient, and highly responsible and ethical. There's a lot of lessons that can be drawn from the conversation we had today. In addition to that, we have some big global issues and thinking differently is the only way to really challenge them.
My work involves consulting for companies to adapt the decision-making to fit these complex and contexts, contextual realities that challenge decision-makers to adapt their thinking, up-level their skill set, and be able to see differently and think differently depending on the context that you're in. The pandemic was certainly a great test for that capability. The goal is to level up thinking so decision makers can see from multiple points of view and therefore make much better decisions with more of a positive impact on people, planet, and the health and vitality of all life support systems. Thank you very much for joining me. If you like this program, please share it. There's more to come.